Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As we conclude this message series, Paint the Town, we come now to the last message in the wordless book, the final color, the color green. The wordless book is a, if this is the first time that you have joined with us, we are in a message series that we've been walking through uh, the wordless book. We've been looking at the colors of the wordless book and talking about how it is that we can share our faith through these colors. And we've been calling this message series, Paint the Town, the idea of taking the gospel outside the four walls of the church and going outside uh, the church and sharing our faith with those who need to hear it. Beginning next week, I'm very excited. We're going to start a new message series uh, through the book of Romans. We're going to go verse by verse through the book of Romans. It's going to take us many months to get through that wonderful book, but uh, the overall theme, the, the underlying theme throughout everything that we're going to be saying as we read and look and preach through the book of Romans is the, uh, the, the scarlet thread through the book. We see Jesus over and over and over. Paul didn't write a gospel, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the four gospels. But if we were trying to find Paul's gospel, it would have been the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is all about uh, what Christ has done for us there, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. So I'm very excited about sharing the book of Romans with you starting next week. Please stand in the honor of reading God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse number 17. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message or the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Father, we thank you for this word. Now, Lord, I pray and ask that you will open our hearts to allow us to hear a word from you today. We ask this in Christ's name and all of God's people said. Please be seated. Three points today on growth. We come to green. Green is the color of growth. And so after we realize that we are sinners, we come under the blood, which is red, washes us white as snow. Uh, we are given the promise of heaven, which is gold. We are baptized in water following uh, our salvation, and now we come to growth, the green. And so what is it that the scripture teaches us about the Christian growth, the Christian faith? Well, first of all, we must understand that growth means that change is inevitable. Growth means that change is inevitable. Now, I know that one of the dirty words in Baptist circles is change. If you want to clear out a Baptist church very quickly, just yell out, change. It's like yelling fire in any other place. People scatter when we hear change. We, we don't like change. We don't embrace change. And, and, and why is it that we're so opposed to change? Well, because the status quo is safe. It's easier. There's no surprises with, with how we've always been doing things. And understand, the older that I get, the less I like change. And, and that just comes natural, right? The older you get, the more you are used to how things are, and we don't want our boats rocked. But I find myself fighting against this. I find myself uh, with, with, with this uh, desire. One part of me says, okay, I, I know that change has to occur. But another part of me is saying, I don't want to change. And, and, and I, I, I bristle inside of myself when change occurs. But I ask myself, why am I reacting the way I do? Why do I react to change the way that I do? 
Well, not all change is good, right? But not all change is bad. Verse 17 tells us that God has done a change in your life. If you're a Christian, God has brought change in your life. You have a changed life. Many of us in this room have experienced this. You, you have come under the realization that you're a sinner. You've given your heart and your life over to Jesus Christ, and you have a relationship with Jesus. And the Bible says that when that occurred, a change happened in your life. God changed you. He, he changed you. You are not the same person that you once were. I am not the same person that I was when I was 17 years old. When I was lost in my sin, lost and dying and going to hell, God saved me. He changed me. He gave me a new direction. He gave me a new purpose. And all of that resulted in change. Aren't you glad that God didn't leave you where he found you? Salvation is change. It's a changed life. I think so often, we, some of us have been saved for so long that we have forgotten what it's like to be lost. Oh, but friend, I want you to think back to that time. That time before Jesus lived in your life. That time before you were filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you called upon the name of Jesus and you repented of your sin, and at that moment, he changed you. A positive change happened. You were dead but now you're alive. This happened in verse 18. Uh, it's a direct action from God. Salvation begins with God. The, the, the Bible says we are reconciled with God. What does that mean? We, we throw these terms out all the time. We are reconciled with God, but, but what does it mean? What is the great truth when it says that we are reconciled with God? There's, there's a deep meaning here that is simply amazing. It's one of the most important messages you'll ever hear. It's one of the greatest statements that can be uttered in human language. That we have been reconciled unto God. That what Christ has done for us is he has reconciled us to God. What does that mean? It means that the relationship was broken. But because of what Christ has done, he has brought peace to that relationship. He has reconciled that relationship. If your marriage is on the rocks, if you are leading toward divorce, you need reconciliation. Two parties in the relationship have broken ways and split ways and they're going in opposite directions. But reconciliation means that you bring two parties and you bring them together. What Christ has done, it's simply amazing, is he has taken the relationship that was broken because of sin, our sin, and he has brought reconciliation with one hand, he has the hand of God. With one hand, he has our hand. And Christ stands here, the risen Savior, and he's brought reconciliation with God. Salvation is amazing. But salvation is change. God changed you. When he reconciled you, he brought peace where there was no peace. At one time, you were enemies of God. You were an enemy of God. But Paul writes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we are no longer enemies with God because of the reconciliation, the peace that Christ has brought. We have a change that has happened. We understand this. Number two, we understand that growth begets growth. Growth begets growth. That last phrase in verse 18, I, I want you to see what it says. And it says that it gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
gave unto us the ministry of reconciliation. A ministry, what is a ministry? A ministry is a service to God. A ministry is a service to God. It's a service to others on God's behalf. So what ministry do we have? Paul tells us. It's a ministry of reconciliation. What in the world does that mean? It means that it is our job, it is our task, it is our service to others under God to share the peace that we have experienced, the reconciliation that we have experienced. It is our unique opportunity and job and mission and passion as believers in Christ to take the peace that we have received and go and share it with those who have never heard it. That's the ministry of reconciliation. It goes back to evangelism, this year of evangelism. It's all about sharing your faith. It's all about telling others about Jesus Christ. I had lunch with a deacon, one of our deacons this past week, and, and he was sharing with me. He said, Pastor, I, I, I had an opportunity to go into a, a hospital room. I, it was a, a family member uh, through marriage, and, and this individual was in the hospital room, and, and we were told that, that he's not going to live. And he said, so I walked in the room thinking that, that this individual is, is, is going to pass away, that, that he's going to be non-responsive. I'm told that he only has hours to live. And, and, and uh, the, the deacon told me, he said, Pastor, I, I walked into the room, and he's sitting up in bed talking. And there's family members all around the room. And he said, so I, I just struck up a conversation. Started talking to him. Come to find out that the man is, is about to pass away, but he had just a moment that, that God brought life into him, and he sat up, and, and he began to speak, and he's just talking and carrying on a conversation with, with, with the loved ones that are around. God gave that to the loved ones. And the deacon told me, he said, Pastor, I was impressed to ask this man whether or not if he were to die, death is imminent. When you die, do you know for sure that you're going to go to heaven? And this man, he said he, he was raised in the Roman Catholic Church, and, and he said, I figured he would say yes, but he looked at me, he said, he said, no, I have no idea. And one of our deacons who was there, he said, may I share with you how you can know for sure that when you die, you get to go to heaven? He said, please do. He shared with him the truth of the gospel, that man, and then two others in the hospital room wind up getting saved. The man... The man, less than 24 hours after that, died. And because of the promise we have in Scripture to be absent from the body for those that are saved is to be present with the Lord. This man is walking down the streets of gold because a Christian took the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry, the peace that he has experienced, he went and shared it with someone who had never heard it. This is the ministry that we're called to. Please turn in your Bible over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, growth begets growth. As we think about growth, personal growth and, and church growth, we understand that growth begets growth. That, that if I'm going, when I'm saved, my responsibility under God is to go and to share what I have received and share it with others. You understand, that's growth, right? To, to, to share your faith implies that growth is going to occur. Notice what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. He said, so put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. 
like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that, is, that by it you may grow up unto salvation, if indeed you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Peter here is not writing simply to brand new Christians. He is writing to Christians who have been saved for 30 plus years. You see, there, there are times in life that, that just because you may have been saved for many, many years does not mean that you have grown up in the faith. Paul writes about this in, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that, that we need to, at some point in our spiritual journey, transition from drinking simply milk, as babies do, and begin to transition to solid food. As we grow in the Lord, the more we can handle, the more we can take, the more we want, and, and but... The unfortunate thing is that so many Christians, often they, they get satisfied with the bottle. They get sacrificed with the milk, and, and all they want is, is the basic surface-level stuff. But, but what we find in Scripture is that God saved us for so much more. He didn't save us just for surface-level stuff, but, but the ministry that God has called us to has depth to it. The, the, God, God didn't save you just so you can go to heaven. You realize that, right? God didn't say, if God saved you to go to heaven, you'd have already been in heaven. God saved you in order for you to live this life as long as your life has been determined by God to, to become more like Jesus, to grow in the faith. And to grow means that at some point we've got to get off the bottle and get on to solid food. Some of the saddest moments of ministry have been to see people who have been saved for years but have never grown up in the faith. Dear Christian, God has changed your life. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's given you salvation. But that doesn't give you the right to just live your life in cruise control. Peter writes that we are to long for, we are to crave. It refers to an intense, continuous desire for God's word. As you look at 1 Peter chapter 1 in the last part of chapter 1, it's referring to the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. And Peter couples this, he comes back in then in chapter 2, and he says that this is what our desire must be, is the word of God. The way we grow in the Lord, the way we grow in our faith is living the word, reading the word, praying the word. As we're in the word, our life, our faith, it grows and it matures. But I want you to notice where Peter then begins, where he goes to. What does he say here in the verse, first verse of chapter 2? He comes from talking about how we must be centered and grounded on the word of God, but then he gives us five sins. He mentions five sins that I believe hinder growth. Your growth and the growth of the church. He mentions these five sins. Let's look at them. First of all, he says malice. Malice means an intentional infliction of pain, harm, or injury to another person. Malice. To inflict pain upon another person. Second of all, deceit refers to deliberate dishonesty. When, when you are dishonest with your words, dear friend, do you realize that your words have meaning and your words can hurt? He says malice, deceit, hypocrisy. To, to, to pretend that you're one thing, but you're somebody else. To say one thing out of one side of your mouth, but then to say something else out of another side. Hypocrisy, it's rampant within so many churches that, that you say one thing to one group and you say something else to another group. He says, this is sin. Envy. Envy is resentful discontent. Finally, he says all kinds of slander. Literally, slander, it means to run others down verbally. It means to put somebody down because of your words. 
So let's review. Peter says that if you want growth to be hindered, if you want growth to stop, these are the five sins that hinder growth. To inflict pain with words, dishonesty, hypocrisy, discontent, running over people with your words. Can I tell you that 99% of church problems come back to these five sins? The reason why many churches are declining and dying is because churches are infiltrated with these types of sins, what I call Christian sins. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's just words. It's just gossip. It doesn't hurt anyone. Oh, friend, I beg to differ. When the vision comes, when change is suggested, the opening response can often lead to these areas of sin which stifle growth. Now, not every change is right. Not every change is good. However, we are told in Scripture not to blindly follow But we are told over and over and over again in Scripture that we are to seek beyond anything else. We are to seek unity. Now, I don't talk much about myself in sermons. I I try to simply stay with the Word of God. But as I was preparing this sermon this past week, the Lord reminded me of of a story. I've never really shared much about the church that Sarah and I came from when God moved us from Middle Tennessee here uh, to Central Florida. And let me give you a backstory. Uh, my wife and I were called to this church in Middle Tennessee in Nashville in 2010. Before that, you, you need to know where we were at. We were in a very good place spiritually. We were at uh, the Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano, Texas. I was the associate pastor for Jack Graham. Prestonwood, there in Plano, right outside of Dallas, has 30,000 members. Just to put this in perspective, I'm from Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, East Tennessee, where Dollywood is. Pigeon Forge has 5,000 people in the whole city. So the church that I'm serving now is six times larger than the city that I'm from. And everything is going well. I mean, I'm, I'm preaching to hundreds, if not thousands, every week. I'm, I'm teaching. I'm, I'm, I'm right behind one of the greatest leaders uh, in, in the church today, Pastor Graham. I'm, I'm walking in his shadows. I, I'm learning from him. Everything is good. And all of a sudden, while everything is getting better and better and better, I get this tap on my shoulder. And God says, hey. I said, get off me. <laughs> Hey, no, I don't want to listen, God. Uh, Things are good right now. I don't want to listen. Don't you see? I'm in my 20s and I'm serving on staff and in this mass. Look look at what's happening here, God. No, get off me. Things are good. God got a hold of my heart and Sarah's heart. And we received a call from a church in Middle Tennessee, 2009 and said, we would like for you to pray about being our pastor. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about your church. You know, here, here I am at Prestonwood, where literally we see 30, 40 people saved every Sunday. Things are going really good. I said, tell me a little bit about your church. They said, well, the average age of our church is 72 years old. Okay. I said, what else? They said, the last church split happened two years ago. Okay. So by last means there's been more than one. Okay, got it. The last pastor of the church is no longer in ministry because of infidelity. Okay. The church, by the way, has operated in the red for the past four years. 
Because of this, the savings of the church is basically depleted. The average worship service here is 250 people. My Sunday school class at Prestonwood was that size. The average size of this church is 250 people. And oh, by the way, we were told by the Tennessee Baptist Convention that if things don't change in 10 years, we're going to have to close our doors. Won't you come be our pastor? Every one of my friends said, if the church is in this direction, you need to run as far as you can that way. And we tried. We tried to run away. But every time we turn around to run, God pulled us back. And he said, son, it's not about the size, but it's about my call. And I'm telling you that you're going one way or another. I didn't want to be swallowed by a fish, so we went. We went. You know, <laughs> the first time I stood in the pulpit, I thought, what have I got myself into? I can't tell you how many times I was told by people that when we were trying to, to move and to change, you realize you're not at Prestonwood anymore. My response was, I'm sure not. <laughs> I realized that. Thank you for the reminder. It was hard. It was tough. We had to lead through many hard issues. We, we had to make hard, difficult decisions. But despite all that had happened in that church in the past, when, when, when we got there, I realized that, that the problems were even much deeper than what I was told. We had members in the church who had children and grandchildren. Because of the church split that happened, they would walk into the grocery store and they, they don't, they're not on speaking terms. The, the, the parents and the kids are, are not on speaking terms and they would see each other on the other ends of the aisle in the grocery store and they would separate and go different aisles because they didn't want to talk to each other. This is the environment that God puts us in. God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? But I stood there on that first Sunday, I said, Church, this is going to be painful. This is going to be painful for you. This is going to be painful for me. But God has not called me here for us to coast and to glide and in 10 years shut our doors and die. I refuse to, get up, to give up. And I want you to give the Lord a chance. Don't give, me, give, give the Lord a chance. This church used to have 13, 1,400 people every Sunday. Now they're 200, 250. I said, I, I want you to believe in, in bigger things. I want you to believe that, that God can do these, these wonderful things. And I remember that first Sunday, 10 people walked down the aisle and got saved. <clears throat> I'll never forget a, a charter member of the church, an 85-year-old woman by that time, giving her life to the Lord, coming down that aisle. Every eye in that place looking at her. What's she going to do? Is she going to punch the pastor? What's she going to do? You laugh, that happened in that church. It happens. What's she going to do? She walked down the aisle and she hit her knees at the steps and cried out, God, save me. The next week, I baptized that 85-year-old woman who helped start that church. She said, I'd never invited Christ into my life. She'd never been saved. 
I remember baptizing 35 people in less than two months of being there. One after another, after another, after another. We saw God take that dead and dying church, and in less than two years, that church was running 600 people. God was doing a tremendous thing. Now, why do I tell you this? Because as I remember all these awesome things, I also remember when the growth stopped. As I thought about this church in Middle Tennessee, and, and as I was preparing the message here today, I, I, I look back, and, and when we got the call three years ago to come to Aloma, we never thought, we never dreamt that we would leave that church in Nashville. That was going to be home for, for 20, 30 years. I never saw myself, I never, Sarah never saw herself in Central Florida, but God did. But you know how they say hindsight is twenty twenty. I didn't see it at the time, but, but as I, I reflected back this past week over all of the, 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 the almost revival that we saw, we almost saw revival take place. As I look back, I didn't see it then, I didn't see it when God called us here, but I, I see it now, hindsight being 2020. I look back and I see the day that the growth stopped. I remember it like it was yesterday. A handful of people in the church, they, they weren't happy with the growth that was taking place. They didn't like the people we were reaching. And so they began to groan and to, to, to murmur and to gossip. They were dishonest. They were hurtful. And as I look back at that, and I, I look back to a certain day, a certain event that happened. After that day... After that Sunday, we were seeing 10, 15, 20 people walk down the aisle every Sunday. It was nothing to see 15, 20 people give their life to the Lord every Sunday. These pews being packed full of people, baptizing every Sunday in a baptistry that hadn't been used in years. And I look back and I think about one event that happened. And after that event, the invitations dried up. Very few people got saved. It was almost as if the vacuum, there was a vacuum that, and God said, I'm taking my hand of revival blessing off of this church. They spread lies. They were dishonest. They were gossiping. They were saying things that were not honoring to God. And we went back to playing the church game, but we never saw change life the way we saw it there at the beginning. Why do I tell you this story? Well, first of all, I want to give testimony to what God has done. God saved so many people. We have a young man on staff here that was saved in the opening days of that, of that revival, of, of, of what we saw, and God called him to ministry, and he's on staff here. He works with our middle school students. I want to give testimony to, to all the people, the churches that were planted from that church in those three years. God has done and is doing a tremendous work of what we first saw. But I also raise a word of warning. A warning to myself and the warning to this church. That dear friend, your actions and your words, they do matter. If you want to stifle the movement of the Spirit of God, you do these church sins. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy. It's just gossip. It's just words. It doesn't hurt anybody. Again, from experience, I beg to differ. They do a lot of damage. We all have a choice, don't we? 
We can choose to sow disunity or we can choose to sow unity. And for our guests here today and for our members, some of you are, are thinking right now, I wonder who sent the preacher that message this past week. wonder what they were complaining about. You know, I, I hope that you know my heart better than that. I'm not one of these preachers that receives a negative word. And, you know, some preachers, they, they receive a letter of correction on Monday, and they stew about it Tuesday through Saturday, and they stand in the pulpit and they preach about it on Sunday. I don't do that. I don't do that. What, why, am I, why am I sharing this? I'm sharing this because it's corrective measure. We don't have a problem of disunity at Aloma. If you're visiting here today, I, I want you to know that you are sitting in a church unlike any church I've ever seen before in my life. This church is so unified, it's uncanny. I, I pinch myself sometimes. Now, do we have problems? Of course we have problems. We, every church has issues and problems. I, I don't give you that story of what happened because of, of some event that's happened recently here. No, I, I share that story because what happened there, I don't want to have happen here. It's preventative. I, I'm begging you, pay attention to what you say. Don't sow cords of disunity. The one thing, if we have anything going for us as a church, the one thing we've got is unity. And 99.9% .9 of churches cannot say that. Can I tell you how much of a privilege and honor and blessing it is to serve as your pastor? Not thinking, oh, well, when's the other shoe going to drop? No, what you see is what you get. And I love that about you, Aloma. I love that about you. I share this to say, Satan, I've seen it in so many churches, what Satan does to, to, to drive a wedge between leadership and the church, to drive a wedge between Sunday schools, to drive a wedge between families. What he does is he sows these five sins. And if he can get us talking, if he can get us backbiting, if he can get us gossiping, then he's driven a wedge into the church and God will not bless that church. The reason why I believe that God is going to do something great here in this body is because of the unity that we have. He is doing something, and I believe that he is going to do something even bigger, larger, and better than any of us have ever seen. I truly believe that. But dear church, dear church, guard your heart. Be very careful. Be very, very careful. Now, do we have difference of opinions here at Aloma? Sure we do. Some of you cannot stand that I wear an orange tie almost every Sunday. Some of you are happy that my orange tie has a little bit of blue in it. We're going to have differences, and that's okay. God has made all of us unique, and he's made all of us different. Differences are good. Differences are what make us unique. Differences are what make us uh, good. But, but what we have to do is we have to guard our unity. We can have differences of opinion but still be unified around the vision and the mission of what God is going to do. You see, when Christians are growing in the word, they're peacemakers, not troublemakers. 
when, when we're growing in the word, we're peacemakers and not troublemakers. The point that Peter is making here is that when we grow up in the Lord and we grow up in Christ as members of his family, he, he's longing for us to be mature. He's longing for us to grow and be strong. But notice what he says, growing up in salvation demands a love for putting some things away, those five cents, putting some things away while longing for others. Let me say this, and then we're going to move on to the final point today. The one thing, all these five sins, th- th- there's one thing they have in common. You know what they are? They all undo other people. These five sins that he mentions here, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, all of them, the, the one thing they have in common is they undo other people. First Peter was written, it's a book, if, if there's one word to describe First Peter, the word is love. He talks about love over and over and over and over again in, in this little letter. And we are called to be people not of division, but people of love. And if we choose to grow, not out of, out of slander and all this stuff, but, but if we choose to grow out of love, Jesus said that they're going to know that you're my disciples because you have love one for another. Can I tell you that when the world walks into this church and they don't see a church divided, a church at odds with with each other, a church that's not complaining, but they see a church that actually loves Jesus, can I tell you that that's an anomaly? I I wish I could tell you that that's the the norm for churches, but, but that's an anomaly. What God is doing here is simply amazing. Dear friend, guard your heart. Growth begets growth. Number three, finally and quickly, real growth comes from giving, not getting. Turn over in your Bible to James chapter one, and as you're turning over to James chapter one, I want us to recall what we had just said in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We read the final verse there in verse 20. It says that we are ambassadors. An ambassador is a person who doesn't really own or have anything. All he's doing is representing someone else. And if we're truly going to grow, we have to view giving greater than getting. And an ambassador is a person that gives and gives and gives and gives, and when he receives something, he sends it back to the person he is representing. You see, that's what we are called to do, is to be not simply receivers, but givers. James talks about this over in James chapter 1. Notice what he says in uh, beginning of verse number 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he once looked like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, who will be blessed in his doing. What's James saying here? James gives us an illustration. He said, "A, a person that receives and receives and receives and doesn't do, a Christian that all they do is receive, is as unnatural and uncanny, unfathomable to think about, just as a person who would look into a mirror and forget what he looks like when he turns away. Does everybody know what they look like? If you know what you look like, raise your hand. If you don't know what you look like, help me out and raise your hand. Come on, people. Let's go. You know, we, we know what we look like. We don't forget what we look like. What's James's point? James's point here is that it, it's unnatural for a person to forget what they look like. It's uncanny, it's unfathomable to, 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 to think and to reason that a person does not know 
what he or she looks like. James's point is it's just as unfathomable for a Christian to receive and not to give. Just as ludicrous as it is for a, to think about a person that forgets what they look like, it's even more ludicrous to think about a Christian who gets and gets and gets and gets, but doesn't give. Now, can you grow by receiving only? Well, of course you can. If you take in and take in and take in and take in, you consume and consume. If you receive more calories than you burn off, you're going to grow. You're going to grow the wrong way, but you're going to grow. Sure. You can receive and be a hearer and grow and grow and grow and consume and consume and consume and receive and receive and receive. But you're growing yourself. You're not growing the church. You're, you're growing yourself. What is the point of the Christian life? The point of the Christian life is to live like Jesus. Who did Jesus love? Jesus loved the church. Who did Jesus die for? Jesus died for the church. Therefore, our responsibility is to see the church grow. The church is built by Christians who use their gifts. They, they give out. Those who have the gifts of singing, they sing in the choir. Those who have the gifts of encouragement, you, you're out in the uh, outside waving as cars come in. You're holding doors, you're shaking hands. But what we found in many churches is that 20% of the people give, 80% of the people receive. 20% of the people give and give and give and give, 80% of the people take and take and take and take. It shouldn't surprise us that this has infiltrated the church. We have two generations in our country of, 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 of individuals like this. They have this mentality. They, they think that they're owed everything. They don't want to give anything, but they're owed this. Have you ever seen this before? Never done a thing in their life, but, but they're owed this. It's so damaging. It, it's this entitlement mentality. Or they think that everybody owes them something. It's all about them. They've never put anything into the system. They want and want and want. You know the only thing they don't want? They don't want to give. <laughs> Taking and not giving is anti-Christian. This is not the message of Jesus. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. James tells us it's okay to receive. The, the, the point here is, is not that we, we, we're not hearers. No, you are to receive. You are to hear. You are to be fed. It is a good thing to be fed. It is a good thing to receive. But it's a better thing to give. It's okay to take in, but the better is to give. That, that's how we grow. With all my heart, I, I truly believe this. That the best singers in this church have never stepped foot in that choir loft behind me. I truly believe that the best givers of this church have never given a dime. The best teachers in this church have never taught a lesson. The best leaders in this church have never led. I don't know why, Christian. I don't know what's transpired in your life. Maybe you've been hurt. I understand the being hurt in church. I get it. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. I understand it. But why is it that maybe you're convinced that you're too busy? Maybe you don't think the church needs you. Let me give you a principle, and we'll close with this. Let me give you a principle that, that I learned a long time ago. It's so true. This principle says this, if, if you don't learn to give the way you've learned to get, eventually everything you touch will die. If you don't learn to give the way you have learned to get, eventually everything you touch will die. That's true in almost every area of life, isn't it? 
Think about it, in the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, why is it that God tells the, the Jews to let the land, after seven years of, of farming the land and working the land, why is it that in Exodus and Leviticus, he tells the people to let the land sit? Not to bother the land, that, that on the seventh year you let the land sit. If you've ever gardened or you, you've, you've had a farm or you've had a garden, you understand this principle, don't you? you? You realize that if you take and take and take and take and take and take and take from the land, eventually the land is going to dry up and it's going to be useless. Every so often, you, you've got to put back into the land. You've got to make an investment in the land. You can't take without giving. If you, don't, if you don't learn to give the way you've learned to get, eventually everything you touch is going to die. Are you demanding more from your marriage than what you're putting in? Are you demanding more from your job than what you're willing to put in? Are you demanding more from your relationships and what you're willing to give? Are you taking and taking and taking and taking and not giving in? Everything that you take and take and take and take and you are not making an investment in will eventually die. Eventually die. Are you taking from your church and not putting in to your church? Hello. Are you taking and taking and taking and taking and not putting anything in? Same principle. For marriage, the same principle for the, the, the ground, the same principle that we've been taught, the same principle applies to everything here. Take and take and take, but if you take and you never invest, if you keep getting but you're never giving, eventually the well will run dry. What you're doing is you're reaping where you've never sowed. You are reaping where you've never sowed. It is not for yours to take. Again, it's not wrong to receive. It's not wrong to reap, but you are to reap where you have sowed. You are to receive and to take where you have planted. Anything else is unnatural. We, we must come to the place where we realize that I have to stop simply being a consumer and I've got to put something else in. Use your gifts. Five things, five things that I want to give to you on how you can get in the game and get involved and grow. Number one, you have to determine that you're a Christian. You have to realize the fact that you're saved. Everything that we've been talking about here is unnatural for a person that's, that's not a Christian. It doesn't come natural to, to, to give back. Our little almost two-year-old Elijah, you know what his favorite word is now? I wish it was daddy still, but you know what his favorite word is? Mine. Mine. I thought it was cute there for a season when he would take something from Abby. I mean, it, my, my, my son is tackling my five-year-old, and it's just amazing. You know, she, he, she's got something he got he, that he, he wants, and he just goes and tackles her. Don't look at me that way. Dads love that. Get a boy, get her. But now, now there's a problem. Now I'm eating something, and he walks up and says, mine, and takes it. I'll, I'll be working on the computer. He, he comes and takes it and says, mine. Son, where did you learn this? You see, you don't have to teach kids to be selfish. It comes naturally. It's natural for us to say, mine. It's unnatural to say, I want to share. 
it's unnatural to, to share. And it's unnatural to give. So that's why we say, first and foremost, if you want to grow and do the things that we're talking about, first of all, you need to determine the fact that you're a Christian. In just a moment, three minutes from now, we're going to stand to our feet. We're going to sing a song of response. And if you need to be saved, you need to slip out from where you are, come forward and take a minister or a deacon by the hand and say, I need to be saved. I need Christ in my life. I need this. Number two, you need to confess your sins. If you're a Christian, you still sin. And friend, God will not use a dirty vessel. He will not bless a dirty vessel. If, if you have sinned as a Christian, you, the, the, the amazing thing is that when you sin as a Christian, you come to the Lord and say, God, here is my life. Here's my sin. Forgive me. And God, you know what he says? You're already forgiven. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. But God is not going to bless a dirty vessel. He can hit a good lick with a crooked stick, yes, but why do, you want to, why do you want to take a gamble? Confess that sin, repent of that sin, turn from that sin. Number three, ask yourself what you're good at. What do you enjoy doing? What has God created you to do? God has created you to do something that nobody else can do. What are you doing or what can you do? Number four, here's the point, just do it. That phrase has made a shoe company billions. But it's even more true within the church world. Just do it. What are you good at? Do it. What are you called to do? Do it. What is it that he has placed you here on this earth to do? Stop praying about it and do it. And when you do that, God will grow you and God will grow the church and God will grow others because of your sacrifice. Number five, believe God for the increase. Trust the Lord. You do what you can do and you leave the results to God.